Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Guy. Hi, Gary. Um, uh, let's hope this goes. We're by a blazing freeway and a loud river with terrible internet. <laughs> we're near Akron, Ohio, uh, and we've been on the road for over a week now. It is and, over a week. Um, in America. Yeah. Uh, it's going really well. Yeah, and I, today... I, 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 well, hang on, because I saw the President of the United States yesterday. You did, about, yes, you did, in Washington, yes, you did. three yards away from me, I, I was just walking around in Washington, as were you. In fact, you were running in Washington. I was. Um, not, running, not running for President, just uh, <laughs> running for fun. <laughs> and, um, and I was... Uh, and I just walked around, and I saw they closed the road, and I just stood on the corner there. You can see it on my Instagram, if you look. Um, and along came the cavalcade. What do you call it? The motorcade. The motorcade, um, They don't yeah. have horses now, do they? And um, <laughs> just so many people uh, riding bikes and cars and, you know, to, 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 to bring this, this guy to work. It was quite extraordinary. Anyway, today, Chris Bedding, <laughs> tell us more, Guy. Chris Bedding. Well, Chris is my dear old pal. I've worked with Chris uh, for many years, mainly for Roxy Music, with Brian Ferry, and I've been in his band, um, the Chris, which was a great little trio of Chris, myself and Andy Newmark. Um, we've done all sorts of funny little gigs and played oh, wow. for other artists. Yeah. Um, Chris is just, he's the ultimate journeyman, but he's also very much his own man. I mean, he's one of those people, he's like a Zelig. He was everywhere, yeah. every yeah. moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, you know, in the 70s, uh, I thought he was the coolest guitarist, you know, he, uh, you know, after Mick Ronson, really, you know, I sort of got to know, you know obviously, they had the, the motorbiking track that he brought out as a solo record, which I bought. And, and then it was really his, his work with Brian Ferry on the Let's Stick Together and In Your Mind, where you saw him as, you know, with that great quiff that he has and looking super first, cool. Very first 50s. leather trousers I ever saw, I think. I mean, he's played with Elton John, Harry Nilsson, um, Joan Armour Trading. Uh, and, of course, he produced uh, the early demos for the Sex Pistols, hung out with, with all that those guys with Malcolm McLaren. And, uh, and he played with Nick Mason. And he played with Nick Mason, yeah, with Carla Blay. Yeah, let's get him on. Welcome to The Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Hey, there he is. Chris. Oh, oh my mate. God. Still, he's still got the hair. I'm so envious of that hair. I've, I've, I've always hated you for that, Chris. Mine has receded. Yours always stayed. 
I've been envious of that hair since I was 15 years old. Well, nice to see you both. No, good to see you, Chris. It's been a long time, mate. Yes, it has. Where are you, Chris? I- I'm in... Um... I'm in West Sussex. Because, of course, we both lived in Brighton for a while. We were neighbours in Brighton. We lived on, lived on the same block, didn't we, for a while? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So what are you up to, Chris? Well, not a great deal. Not a great deal. It's been a funny couple of years. Oh, you think? I, I did the War of the Worlds thing, a little tour. <laughs> That's right. Uh, they did. They tour every sort of two years, 18 months. They keep doing... It's one of those things, they keep doing farewell tours. We on tour right now with Nick Mason. That's right. This is what we've we've been doing. Right. So, How's that? Um, How's that? It might be a really it might That's be great. a nice in to begin with your yeah. You actually did Nick's you worked first with solo Nick. record, didn't you? I did. I, I just yeah. Uh, Fictitious Sports was the album, and I did it around 1980, which I just realised is over 40 years ago. It's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was was that before Carla Blay then? Sorry, I've got this. No, Carla Blay was on Fictitious Sports. She was doing a lot of the oh, writing. Oh, I, th- I thought that was a separate thing. Well, it might have been later on, but this was maybe, I don't know how that all came about, but there they were. I got the call to go up to Woodstock where, where she had a studio and a nice set up. There was Steve Swallow on bass, who was very good. And um, yeah, and it was all right. You know, it's a, it's a bit prog, but uh, don't mind a bit of prog now and then. Because you've won, you once sort of came second in some jazz guitarist poll, and you're saying you like a bit of prog. So, because we, you know, I always think of you as this fabulously proto punk guitarist. You're the sort of uh, so true to the essence of rock and roll. Oh, yeah, just blown my cool, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> we all have, yeah, we're playing prog out here, mate. Don't worry about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> Nick's your man for, for all that. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, the first time I sort of really became aware of you was probably on the let's stick together track and that vid- that video you know and uh how cool you looked on that and that whole album it's quite a weird album brian's album for it because it there's there's it's only like a couple of years after country life and yet there's version versions of casanova which actually i think are, some of those versions of the old roxy tracks that he does on there are, are better than the originals in some in some cases Right. It, it was a weird concept that he put together. It, it was a bit of it was one of those albums that we did it as a as a EP, and I don't think it was ever issued as a the Lex Stick Together album in 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 England. And, and, and That's right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, of course. It was. Yeah. So it was a bit of a mishmash stylistically of tracks it was put together by his probably without his approval, because <laughs> it was yeah. a, a Let's Stick Together was on an EP with with other. But he so, was redoing some old Roxy stuff that was only a couple of years old. I'm not on the whole album of Let's Stick Together, the Let's Stick Together album. I'm on this EP. Oh, I got you. Um, and I, I did the four tracks from the EP. So it's all a bit of an odd period. But how did uh, you become um, Brian's sort of uh, right-hand man? Well, hmm. We, I was in a band called Sharks in the seven, early seventies. Yes, and we were Andy Fraser. Andy Fraser, yeah. And um, we, uh, our first outing was supporting Roxy Music on their second tour. So we got to know the guys. We got to know Andy Mackay and Phil Manzanera. And I suppose we, uh, Brian's not one of those guys who's that sort of gregarious, but we knew of him and he knew of us basically so i guess that's how it all came about and i got a call a bit later on. oh no at, at, at the same time i think when the sharks broke up i was kind of managed by eg mark fennick and all those people who, who, who managed roxy so, yeah so we were kind of in the same ballpark really so it was inevitable that we were going to end up working together which we did and it was quite productive i think I think the quiff is has this something. where your association with Chris? Oh, sorry, I was going to say because I can't remember who produced the Brian's. It, it was is Chris Thomas involved here? Yes, Chris Thomas. Did, did, did. Because that's what became an incredibly important yes, relationship it, for you. It did, yeah. Uh, uh, Chris Thomas produced "Let's Stick Together," and I had already worked with Chris Thomas with John Cale, so I knew Chris Thomas. Uh, there's this really odd situation where Chris Thomas was already, already recognised as a great producer. He was on the road in, in John Cale's road band playing keyboards, second keyboards, with John Cale. Oh, uh, right. And we were on, on the um, album that was Slow Dazzle, it was called, yeah. for Ireland 
we were all set to do Helen of Troy album, and you'd have thought, who shall I get to produce it? Of course, it's going to be Chris Thomas, isn't it? But he didn't ask him. So, <laughs> huh? so we were all set. I mean, Chris Thomas would have been perfect. He was familiar with the material. He loved John. Chris loved John. And um, But John had one of those moments where, oh, I'm not going to ask the obvious talented guy that I know really well who'd be dying to do it. I won't ask him. So I guess that's a question for John Kell to answer. I mean, I've always wondered why, why, because it was a bit chaotic, because John's a bit chaotic when he produces his own stuff. And it would have been so much more of a polished album than Helen of Troy. Yeah, yeah, but he, he may never have gone on to produce the Sex Pistols as well, you know, and... Uh, well, he and would. That, that, was, other... that, was years, that was years later. Yeah, but, well, yeah, but yeah. The, the fact that he ended up going on and doing working with you and Brian, you know, just sent him off into a different path. Uh, it might have done because I kind of introduced him to the Sex Pistols. Um, That's right. And, and when I did my album, uh, the Hurt album, around the same time that the the, um, the Sex Pistols were doing their uh, Never Mind the Bollocks album, I got in as a as a backing singer, none other than Chrissy Hind, who who'd not been no, wasn't known at all and hadn't got a Pretenders band together. So I introduced Chris and Chrissy together. Uh, so a lot of those things might not have happened if I'd have, uh, yeah. Have you seen Pistol, the the TV show? I've, I've I've seen some of it. I wasn't able to finish it. I thought I was a bit grossed out by it because, you know, it's one of those things where you, you'll know this, where, when you're at, uh, present during sort of momentous happenings in the music business, you know, you, you, you've got your version of what went on. And I, I was present during lots of, situations and lots of gigs, early gigs, and uh, ended up producing their demos and introducing them to Chris Thomas. And so I've got my version of what went down and I'm sort of look, look at everybody's written, written a book or like got a, a, an opinion from those guys. You know? <laughs> and I'm going, wait a minute, that's not what happened. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Oh, are there any key points you can think, is there anything that sticks in your mind? Anything in particular? Uh, <laughs> I mean, for a start, you should be in it. It's true. You're I, such I a think, key player. You are definitely a missing well, sorry, member of that story. There is, a bit where, there is a bit where you're kind of in it, isn't there? Is a guy who's kind of helping out with some demos? That's Dave Goodman. That's the other guy. I was the guy that got them in the studio first. They'd never been in a studio before. And then they went off with this other guy who was a bit of a hippie who thought the way to produce a, a rock band was to have them play their backing tracks over and over and over again until they got oh, really right. tired of it. I was. I just went in and I took their first date, and everything was really easy because they were a band who knew all their. So they didn't have to learn any songs. They knew them all. And I chose the best songs, and, and we went first date. And I didn't want them to get like um, red light fever. You know, I, I said let's let, let's just run one song down. You know, and I told the engineer, I said just record it. And it, of course, they didn't make any mistakes. It was fantastic. That was the first date. They thought that was me being. Uh, I don't know. Lazy. A bit lazy or like lackadaisical or like not, you know. But I, I knew enough about being in, playing in the studio at that point, you know, this was about 1976, to um, know that that's the way you did it. They went off and thought, oh, we don't want spending. He didn't take it seriously enough. <laughs> and uh, they went off with Dave Goodman, this hippie who thought that you needed to uh, go on playing the same old thing over and over and over again until it lost all its life. But didn't Malcolm want us? Uh, didn't wasn't I? I remember you saying once there was some there was a guitar style or sound that you were after, and Malcolm wanted something different. I can't remember what it was you said. Don't remember. Don't remember that because I, I bought a lot. I bought a lot of my amp for, for Steve Jones, um, so he kind of sounded a bit like me anyway. So no wonder people thought it was me. Did he used to play a Fender, didn't he? Yeah, I think they used. Uh, Fender Twins, which I never got a good sound out of mine. Was... Oh, so you don't like Twins? You don't like Fender Twins? Do you? Well, they're too heavy and they're too loud. I turn all the treble and bass off and just use the mid. But um, uh, you know, I, I, as regular listeners to this show, can we just say on record we've just got we've just had a legendary guitarist complaining that an amp is too loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're playing clubs, it's too loud. Uh, Chris, as, yeah. as, as, as regular listeners to the show know, I saw the Sex Pistols at the screen on the green with Glenn right. Matlock in that first, um, and it, it did change my life. But the one thing that always surprised me when, when, when people spoke about punk was that they apparently couldn't play. But what I saw was a band that really could play. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Steve was a good player and, and the whole rhythm section was fantastic with Glenn. 
Steve is yes. a great player. Yes. Cookie has a fantastic pocket. Yes. I've always said he's one of the great. He's a great drummer. Yeah, yeah. I uh, the uh, Sex Pistols were like I think the only punk band from that time that I really liked. I didn't get suddenly overwhelmed with punk and get into it. I thought, well, these guys are good. You know, I, I thought they could play. And I thought Steve Jones was amazing because apparently he'd only been playing a couple of years, and I thought, and I'd been playing for Yonks, and I thought, well, for that type of music, Steve plays it perfectly, and I couldn't play it any better for all my experience and you know, sort of background in different types of music. He played it just as well as it is possible to play that yeah. that music. There was a rumor for years that it was you, wasn't there? There was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, well, I, I called up uh, Malcolm McLaren and said, "Look, well, it's a bit tough on Steve. He probably wants to get get credit for his work. Well, why don't we put together some kind of um, press release to officially say that it's, um, it's Steve and not me?" And and Malcolm wasn't interested. <laughs> so no, I thought no. Oh. he wants he wants the trouble, doesn't he? he wants the intrigue. He, he'd I... rather, yeah, he'd rather, yeah. And so I th- at that point, I stopped having anything to do with Malcolm. No, but I totally get. I totally get why you were involved because I mean, if anyone looks at pictures of you in the seventies, you were one of the coolest people I've ever seen in rock. And so I guess you were. And there was this kind of fifties revival going on at that time, which which Malcolm was also part of with Let uh, Let Let It Rock. Let It Rock. rock. Yeah, yeah. And so were you part of that whole scene? Yeah, well, because I remember you telling me Vivian used to make all your clothes for you. Well, she, she made some. Before then. She, she used to make all your peg pants. Yeah, yeah, she she did, yeah. Uh, I used to go there and get Because you couldn't get new stuff that looked like that. You had to go to a, a, a vintage store and get something that's a bit, mm. bit ratty. She would make something brand new and it would be good. So uh, they... There was no such thing as vintage then. It was second hand. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I used to go there. So they knew about me, and they persuaded me to come down to see uh, the band at the Hundred Club. And it was Chrissy Hines that called me up and said, "You've got to come and see this band uh, at the Hundred Club tonight." And, and there we go. What was it like? Oh, it was great. I thought I was very impressed with them. Uh, there was not many people in the club, and there were even less people in the club when they'd finished. They sort of frightened people off. <laughs> so that kind. Of- but this is what. What's really nice and really refreshing to hear from you, Chris, is that this whole thing around the Sex Pistols is is everyone just saying they were dreadful and they made me think, well, if they can do it, I could do it, and they're awful. And what's really nice is to hear like a proper, real musician like yourself who was actually thought, you know, your love for them was based on the fact that they were actually a really good band. Yeah, they were a good band, and um, and we knew <laughs> it. I knew at the time, being involved in the music business, that we needed something new. These were ex- this Sex Pistols were exactly what we needed. Because you know the melody maker and New Musical Express, it was yeah. it was like ELP, Led Zeppelin, and ELO, and all that sort of stuff. It all, all getting a bit tired, and I thought we needed something new, and there they were. And I couldn't believe that these. I used to go down the speakeasy, and these musical journalists used, used to seriously say to me, "You better watch uh, watch, watch who you hang out with, because you've got a good reputation in this business, and you you shouldn't be hanging out with guys that have sex pistols." <laughs> so I would say, "Well, that's interesting. Each to his own." When did you hear them? Oh, I've not heard them, but I, everybody knows they're terrible. So I thought, "Well, so <laughs> I can do yeah. I can do something here." So I went back to Malcolm and said, "If you are a studio for a day, I can give you." Because nobody with that with that reputation, no no record executives are going to come around the hundred club to listen to you. They're not going to be interested. They've got to hear something. You know, it's the old three song demo, which will get you a deal, which you got many people deals over the years. So I said, I can do that for you because I know how to do it. <laughs> so, uh, and there's a bit of a funny show business type story behind that. We hired um, Majestic Studios in Clapham, which I knew from. Uh, I knew from working with Eno there, he did his Here Come the Warm Jets there. And, um, oh, just uh, throw that in. Yeah, just that's just how I knew the... I thought, I'd, thought <laughs> I'd drop that name since we're talking about... Yeah. That's how we got to know him on, on, what, that, an album, yeah. on, that same, on that same tour. Eno was still in the back. It was his last, last mm. tour with Roxy. So I, I thought, I'm a, this guy's a bit cheesy, this Malcolm McLaren. I'm not going to get ripped off by him. Uh, so I said, Malcolm, you, it's about 18 pounds an hour. We're going to be in there all day. 
bring enough cash because I'm not going to get stuck with the bill, all right? So he, he was good as gold. He, he, the, the, the guys showed up. We were all set up by 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, by the time of 5 o'clock coming around, we got three songs all, all, all mixed and everything. What tracks and did he, you do? We, uh, I went to a rehearsal and, and, and got them to do their whole repertoire, and I chose at that time Problems, No Feelings, and Pretty Vacant. Mm. They're not they're not written God Save the Queen at that point, otherwise I'd probably be in. So I said, those are your three strongest songs, and that's what we did. Um, they, they they sometimes appear, those songs, as the spedding tapes on the reissues of uh, Nevermind the Bollocks. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, and anyway, so... The irony of all this is that I thought I was being so smart with Malcolm McLaren, but if I'd have paid for those sessions, I'd have owned the masters. (laughs) (laughs) So who knows? Later on, I realised my your ticket out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that was pretty funny. Because everyone, it's funny because everyone who formed a punk band after that, and including you know myself, that you know I saw them in August. By September, I had you know my equivalent of a punk band. Uh, thought they had to play at 100 miles an hour, but if you listen to Nevermind oh, the right. Bollocks, it's not yeah. 100 miles an hour. No, they've all, got, they've all got good grooves, yeah. And that's one of the things that I, they, I didn't like about uh, a lot of the punk they things. They played at Who Speed. Yeah, they did. Who Speed, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> at, that, at that time, I was like totally listening to uh, um, Otis Redding and Motown and um, that type of American R&B from the 70s. And... Um, so I was quite impressed with the the Sex Pistols groove, and totally nonplussed by the Ramones who play, played everything far too fast. Even though they made it a thing, that was their thing, wasn't it? But uh, I thought, yeah. well, you know, I don't choose yeah. particularly to listen to that type of music. You know, I much prefer what the Sex Pistols were doing, which for young guys was quite mature. Which I suppose was more like Iggy Pop and his band, you know. Yeah. Sorry. We also say because having played with you, having played in your band, you know, yeah. with 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 Andy Newmark, which is I've got to say one of the most fun trio things I've ever done, is that because you're natural for someone with such facility. What I, I mean, the songs that we've I've done with you, Garland Jeffries, um, Wild in the Streets, and stuff. It's like it is that real kind of no messing straight down the line kind of proto-punk that you'd like, isn't it? When you're left to your own devices, it's a bit... like your Robert Gordon stuff, the most yeah. Yeah, I, truthful, you know. Yeah, I, I I like to try and strip it all down to the uh, what re- yeah. what really works with no uh, no frills. Yeah, uh, and then Sex Pistols were doing that. They did that. But I suppose what yeah. Guy's saying as well, and what I know your sound for was that sort of slightly fifties, you know, the sort of Eddie Cochran influence, the rockabilly influence, the yeah. music. Yeah, yeah. But is that so? How, how did you? get into that sound? How, how did that become Chris Spedding? Well, uh, when I was about 12 years old, that, take, that takes you to about 1956. And that was when Elvis and Little Richard, and that's when all that was happening, which we now call rock and roll or rockabilly. We never used to call it rockabilly in those days, it was just rock, rock and roll. Yeah, I remember, yeah, rockabilly, I don't think I ever heard till like the end of the 70s. I know, well, when I first met Robert Gordon in New York, he said, well, I hope you, get into the, I hope you can play this rockabilly stuff, uh, Chris. And I said, well, what do you mean? You know, like Elvis and Gene Vincent. Oh, Scotty Moore and... Uh, although, yeah, I know how to do that shit. <laughs> because I grew up on it. All the first things that I ever picked up a guitar and tried to sort of copy guitar parts was, was Elvis's guitar player. Who, of course, I didn't know what, what, what his name. We didn't know any of those guys' names. We didn't know that it was James Burton with Rick Nelson or um, it was a guy with uh, Gene Vincent. Um, Paul. Oh, um, uh, Cliff Gallup. What's his name? Amazing. Cliff, Cliff, Cliff Gallup. Yeah. We didn't know any of those guys. We thought we thought the the, the guys that backed up um, Elvis would call the Jordanaires, which of course that because <laughs> that was Elvis Presley with the Jordanaires on the record. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, oh, the guitar player's got to be the probably his name is Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, much, much later we get to find out all the details of this stuff. But if you're 12 years old, you don't know. You're just going by the record information on the record sleeve which was but did that encourage you to go out and buy a guitar or did you get bought a guitar was well i started out in music playing the violin when i was nine years old but i didn't know any better my all my my parents were into classical music and i didn't know anything 
I mean, they, they wouldn't even play Frank Sinatra and Rosemary Clooney in the house. It was all like opera and everything. And I was, that's what I thought music was. And um, when I started hearing, uh, it was the Skiffle thing. You remember Skiffle? Yeah. Um, of course, my dad wrote Tommy Steele's songs. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Rock with the Caveman. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you know, Glenn Matlock's a big fan of all that stuff. I know he is. I've I've actually played Rock with the Caveman with Glenn. Oh yeah. You know, he's always champ. He's been a big champion of that. Yeah, yeah. God bless him. He's in. He's into all that. Yeah. So uh, that, that's how I came to be a guitar player. I, uh, giving up the violin, putting it away, and much to the disgust of my parents, because in in nineteen. 19- 56 if you wanted to play a rock and roll it was equivalent if you wanted to be a gangster rapper now you were yeah, you yeah. were it was a bit weird yeah. it's a bit like oh dear we're a bit worried about chris you know <laughs> yeah yeah and they were right to be <laughs> <laughs> i guess they were yeah did bill like, was it was bill haley too naff in those days because i know my parents well, went to see bill haley right well no but well we thought bill haley was great until we became aware of elvis because yeah uh, Bill Haley looked like your uncle or your dad. That's right, he was 36, which is kind of unimaginably old. 36 you... stone, I think he was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look at pictures of him now and he doesn't look that naff. No, no, of course not. We're all twice as old as well. I know, not to us now, no. But he, he had a shit-up band, really hot band. Right. And that, yeah. that guitar player who played the Walk Around the Clock solo, I still, I yeah. still love to play that. That's his name, Den... Uh, Oh, God, I've forgotten his name now. I did look up who he was. He died shortly after cutting that solo. Um, oh, it's a little bit, yeah. It's, it's, very, it's really fast jazz. Yeah, it was uh, like what you might have called a Western swing player. There's a, a genre called Western swing, which was almost jazz, but it was country, country sort of flavor, but it was, they were all jazz players. Uh, and yeah. so he was one of those. He's at the chops of a bebop jazz player. His name, I just looked him up. His name was Danny Cedron. Cedron, yes, right. Danny Cedron, yes. Yeah, yeah. And the, the guitar that he was using was just a, a regular archtop guitar with a, with a arm and pickup screwed on it with no cutaway. It's a regular archtop wow. guitar. So when did you get your first, oh, wow. where did you get your first guitar? Well, I'm, I got my dad to get me one. It was a, it was a Fender... Not, uh, not Fender, uh, uh, Hofner, Senator. They had, uh, and it was similar to what Danny Sedron was playing. It had no cutaway and it had one pickup. And I'd, yeah. I'd, uh, I thought it was wonderful at the time. <laughs> and a Watkins, a Watkins amplifier. Oh, uh, sem- of sem- course. 17 watts. And I was totally bowled over by the fact that he had a tremolo on it so I could sound like Dewey and Eddie. Fantastic. Did it ever occur to you to turn it up and drive it? Was drive something you'd avoid? Uh, no, I thought that... Well, you see, my amplifier, when I got my first school group together, uh, it was uh, not loud enough. We, 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 we got this bass player in who had a Watkins Dominator. Oh. What about four pick four, four inputs? So we all plugged into that. Include. But they're still small. They're still very small. The not, that was my first. N- not to us in those days. Yeah. Ev- everybody went in it, including the bass player and the singer. <laughs> 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 it must have sounded dreadful. Uh. <laughs> How? Hang on. It hasn't got the inputs. How do you do that? Did you just sort of splice leads together or something? We managed. Uh, I thought it, it must had four had, inputs. Must have had four inputs. Yeah. Must, must have had four inputs. Like, yeah, PM, yeah. Yeah. Or one marked accordion. Remember those? That's right. Amp- well, he, he was an accordion player, wasn't he? Charlie Watkins, who started when, was oh. an accordion player. He hated rock and roll. Right. He basically yeah. wanted to amplify accordions. Okay. <laughs> so what was the yeah. moment, Chris, when, when, you, when you sort of thought, this is it, I'm going to become professional? How did that happen? Uh, I think it was because I was so bad at everything else at school. I sort of was a bit of a dropout. I used to bring my guitar into into school and mess around in free periods. And I wasn't interested in anything else. I wasn't interested in academia or doing anything uh, respectable, basically. I wanted to be a teddy boy. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't, yes. but I, but You I still afford, do. I, d- I couldn't afford the clothes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I've been working on the, on the Elvis hairdo for the last 50 years. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You and Jimmy Page were the sort of two go-to guys in, in for session rock music. Uh, well, it was the, Jimmy Page in, 60s. in the 60s. Yeah, I, I was a bit of a late starter then. I was going through my jazz purist phase uh, and I really wasn't doing I sessions. I still find that really hard to imagine, but I love that. I, I, I to find that extraordinary. So, you know, knowing you as I've had, I mean, I've known you for what over twenty years, and, it, and I, the jazz. I love, I love that you have that side to you. But here's the thing, Chris. So you leave school, you come to London, right, yeah. in search of fame, fortune. How did, how did you eat? How did you live? What did you do? You know, when you, when you got to London. Oh, I I got a job at Clifford Essex, which is a, a guitar, banjo and mandolin store. They, they didn't specialise in amplifiers or electric instruments. It was like more the, for the folkies and all the old-fashioned banjo guys. Uh, and I sold sheet music there and guitars um, for a, a pittance. I think I got about 30 shillings a week or something. Um, and then in the end, I got a job on the boats. I got a job on the, the piano orchestras. Doing, right. doing, yeah, yeah. doing the uh, this trip to Australia and back. That was in the days when you could pay ten pounds and have an assisted trip to Australia because they wanted people. Yeah, to yeah, come. yeah. My, my, my uncle and aunt. Poms left. Ten yeah. pound poms. Ten pound poms. Yeah, and I. Uh, yeah. I, that was my first professional job. I came back to London and picked up a gig to playing with Nat Temple's orchestra, who used to do the uh, society circuit. We'd do like bar mitzvahs and and weddings at the Dorchester and the Savoy. Did you wear black like, tie for the gig? Oh, yeah, you had to have the black tie and the tux. Yeah. And we had put a little band jackets on. It was pretty horrific. It's just, I mean, that. fortunately, these bands don't exist anymore. You just hire a DJ yeah. if you've yeah, got yeah, a function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But in those days, the bands... Or Brian Ferry, if it's a posh function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and even he'd bring his uh, DJ yeah. on. Tape, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, there was a remnants of the the big bands, you know, like the Glenn Miller type, Duke Joe Loss. Type. Joe Loss's Joe Loss made a made a pretty good go of it actually. Yeah. Uh, but but Nat Temple's band, he had the sax players and the trumpet players in the front line. So oh, you right. can imagine, so you can imagine if like a nineteen sixties pop song like from the Kinks or the Who or the Beatles, they were trying to play this. In those days, you go down Denmark Street and they give you the sheet music to the latest pops. Can you imagine what they, those horns would have sounded like doing, <laughs> playing the top vocal line of uh, like my generation? Oh, so they're instrumental. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. my god. It was horrific. But anyway, that was my grounding in like learning the business. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was and my so did gig. You, did you must have taught yourself to read music for that? Well. The violin period meant meant that I knew what the notes were. Of course, were. of course, you played the violin. We've, we we skipped that. You start, yeah, of course, the violin. I played the violin, so I knew what the notes were. So I wasn't a total ignoramus. So I was able to, if if I was in a situation where notes were involved, I wasn't freaking out, thinking I can't do this. I was thinking, well, I know what these yeah, notes yeah. are. I wonder what this is going to sound like. You en- you ended up in this band, Battered Ornaments, that supported the Rolling Stones at Hyde Park. We were managed by Black Hill Enterprises who promoted the whole thing, so they put their band on in the prime spot. So that's the other little... And how would you got to be managed by Black Hill Enterprises? Because they were a big deal. Well, it was Pete Brown's band. That's Pete right, Brown, of course. The, 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 the lyricist. The lyricist from The Cream, which is how I got to do the Jack Bruce uh, albums. Oh. He needed, he needed a... I always reckon he needed a guitar player 
who didn't sound like or was trying to sound like Eric Clapton because he'd already done that. And I was somebody who didn't sound like Eric Clapton. I never really uh, said to Jack, is this why you asked me? Because he's not around to ask anymore. I it, think it, it probably was. I think it, it probably, probably was. was. It probably was. I mean, because you're right, because there was that, that whole period. There was only Clapton, wasn't there? there was, yeah, and I, yeah, there were very, very few, few guitar players that you could hire that didn't want to sound like him, especially if you were playing with Jack Bruce. <laughs> Yeah. Although, actually, on an aside, there's something because there's a record of yours that I always loved, and I remember, I, and I've talked to you about this, which is Guitar Jamboree, right? Where you do that thing of where you imitate every, yeah. you know, you name every guitarist and imitate them. And uh, but it was interesting when I was asking about the style because you said, that, like, for instance, when you do the Pete Townsend bit, it's very hard to do something without infringing into the copyright territory yeah yeah so, so it's very careful really, to avoid you can't do anything that's yeah. too recognizable right yeah. but but did, but you said about the Clapton one was hardest because it's actually all albert king <laughs> well <laughs> yeah the, the, uh, one of eric clapton's best so solos is it's strange brew which is exactly the yeah. same as eric as uh, an albert king solo on uh, born under a bad sign i believe that's yeah, it's exactly the same. So I, well, I guess I you know you were coming from a slightly different angle, weren't you? Your your musical inspirations were different to his, I suppose. Uh, well, at that, that time, I was I, I was listening to a lot of those guys and guitar jamboree. I was genuinely uh, listening to them and being influenced by them. Oh no, it's a it's a it's a real love letter of a record. I mean, that's what I love. I remember yeah. just hearing it. It was John Peel played it one night, and it's just stayed with me forever. I loved it. Well, you know, we see festivals all the time now on TV and they're, you know, the BBC are doing Glastonbury, you know, and it's such a corporate thing now. But what feeling of, was there some sense of revolution when you're playing Hyde Park in, in 1969 or whenever it was? I think it was 69. You know, this joyous free concert for young people. You're taking over the world. I was kind of intrigued to see the, the Rolling Stones, but I wasn't having a good day. I, I get terrible, used to get terrible hay fever, and it was a, a bad day for the hay fever. And uh, we had, being the battered ornaments, our, our, our bandwagon was a, a, an ex-army uh, field ambulance with a big red cross on it. And, of course, the Stones commandeered it to come in to Hyde Park with. Oh, and I was... I, yeah, the, the limos the limos came in and there was nobody in them. And then this horrible looking field ambulance came in and that's where the stones were. And they turfed me out of the... I, I was uh, trying to not be affected by the pollen count of that day by secreting myself in the bandwagon. They turfed me out. No, we've got to use the van to go and get the stones. So I was really pissed off about it. <laughs> anyway, that's anyway. As, as, so, as soon as I went on stage, I went back in the van, and I, of course, I couldn't really hear them. Oh my so god! That, that's my abiding memory of the day. Because you didn't you get um, didn't you get supplanted by Keith? Oh well, yeah. I I'd, I'd accepted a, a gig to do a, a week uh, in the studio with Tom Waits, uh, and I thought a week would be enough because I. Booked um, some gigs. I was going out on on the road the week after, and I'd listened to a little was bit. This, of top. Was this was this as you or, or with? Yes, I mean, I, it would have been my little trio. Yeah, similar sort of the one no one we had in New York. I'd listened to a little bit of Tom Waits, and I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. It sounds like he's really spontaneous and doing it really good. But this album, we'll do this album in a week. But. As it as it turned out, he wasn't that sort of guy at all. He was he, he was very sort of uh, obsessed with every little detail, and we ended up just doing that one track in that one week. So that's why I ended up only being on one track. Right. I had to leave this project and go on on, on the road. With what album was it? Uh, Swordfish Trombone or something. Right. Right. I know. Oh, no, 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 that's the one it Wasn't the one, no, it was the one after Trombone's, wasn't it? But I get why he wanted to use you, because he's got that sort of 50s throwback thing, and, and there's definitely, right. you, know, you seem like a perfect combination, you two, but but the detail, like, it kind of, it goes against the grain of, of putting together a 50s-sounding record. Yeah, I, I, was, I, I was a bit disappointed in that, because I thought it would be very spontaneous and sort of lots of fun, but it was very, very... 
It's more contrived. Obs- he was a bit obsessed about every sound. You know, he had these these demos that he'd made, and he wanted the percussion and the drums to be to be sound exactly like this cassette, which was really lo-fi. We were in the top, the top studio, CBS in New York, I think it was. And he'd go around the studio opening drawers and banging on the bottom and picking up boxes, uh, hitting them. He said, I want it to sound like that. You know, <laughs> um, you know, I thought, well, we've learned the song. We're sort of into the song now. Why can't we just do it? And, you know, yeah, you yeah. can always overdub the sound that you, that you want later. It's just spoiling the vibe here, man. You know, well, I didn't say that, but uh, that's why we only got the, that's why I'm only on the one track. And then Keith well, came in and took over. Well, yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, I found out about Keith coming in later because I've been as out on the road. Was it Rain Dogs, Chris? Rain was Dogs. Rain, yeah, Rain Dogs is the, is the name of the album, yeah. yeah. You Googled yeah, that. You Googled that, didn't you, Gary? I don't Google anything. I've got a brain that just contains everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, th- this is a question I want to ask you. So you've got Broken Ornaments, and we're going back now to this sort of late 60s, early 70s, and you've got your own band. Is there this dilemma always between wanting... And, Guy, it's probably this question I need to ask you both. In this, you know, I always wanted to be in a band. I always wanted to write in a band and be in a band. And the band was everything for me. But if I'd been drawn into session playing, I can see why that I might get frustrated because I'm Mm. earning good money as a session player, as you both probably were. So, But you have to kind of give up good money to make a band work. Was, was, was you ever any regrets, Chris, that you couldn't get that thing, have your own group only? Well, I always used to try with the groups. I tried with the battered ornaments. Uh, and it sort of kind of fizzled out. None of the band were... We were all a bit sort of... Uh, um, what's the word? When you're... Uh, poor. <laughs> well, we were poor, but we were, we were anti... anti uh, anti-everything. You know, uh, what's right. the word when you're anti-everything? Oh, punk! <laughs> well, we kind of were for 1969. Yeah, yeah. You didn't want to be uh, commercial. Yeah. We were. We thought uh, we were a bit like the mothers of invention, you know, like sending right. everything up and being satirical. And uh, in okay. actual fact, right. we were just a, a load of ex-jazzers trying to play rock and roll because we, we thought that's the way to make some money. Uh, cynical, I think that's called. Cynical, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. We were, uh, but uh, we uh, we had the advantage of working in Abbey Road Studios in the late sixties, which was not bad. But oddly enough, the rest of the band weren't interested in con- continuing with it. We we fired Pete Brown from the band because we didn't like his singing, and realised that none of us could sing any better than him. What happened was the the band sort of fell apart around me, and I was left the only guy who wanted to make a record. So I became a singer-songwriter by default. I thought, I'm not going to walk away as a musician in, in his 20s, walk away from a, 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 an ex- expectation to deliver an album that's going to be recorded in Abbey Road. I thought that would be, like, completely bonkers. I might as well give up and, you know, take up detectoring or something. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the beginning of my me doing a, a solo stuff. The band fell apart, and, and and there was nobody left but me to sing. We'd done all the backing tracks all in all the wrong keys. I didn't even know what my key was, Ugh. so I had to do, do the vocals on that. But you do because you have kind of you've always been you've always managed to. It seems to me, Chris, you've, you know, from all the stuff I've done with you, it's like you know we'll be doing stuff with Brian, and then you'll have this little thing, and we go and do that, and then there'll be that this that little thing. It's like you always manage to you, you're always managing to scratch that itch somehow, though, aren't you? Uh, I found when I got into doing lots of sessions, which I did around 1970, um, you're aware of the syndrome of, if, as a session man, you know, you sort of play on somebody's album, the album becomes a big hit, and you think, oh, you know, I could have got a little more credit for that, or like, like you know, if could, I've just got the session fee, and these guys are buying mansions and stuff, you know. and you get a little bit bitter. Well, I never had that because. I always could go to Abbey Road and uh, if I had an idea or I had any inspiration, I could always, because uh, they, they didn't use to charge charges any money. Wow. They, 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 take it, they take it out of the royalties, you know, we didn't have to sort of put, put say, hey, can, can, can I get a couple of grand to go in and do a day in, in the right. studio? You just go in and you'd never hear about any money. 
if you wanted to hire a session guy, EMI would pay for it. The guy would come down with a, with a little... Nice. Because wow. you assigned to them. Is that what you mean? I, that's right. We were assigned yeah. to Harvest, yeah. I see. Yeah. I used to show up at Abbey Road and I was able to park my car in the car park, which hardly any, any session guys ever... But you, play, you played on some amazing uh, tracks and, and albums and those. I mean, Harry, Harry Nielsen... Uh, Nielsen, yeah. Smilchen, Smilchen. That's, easy. That's easy for you right. to say. And uh, <laughs> Elton John's Madman Across the Water. Yeah. I mean, let's yeah. talk yeah, about Elton. Eager. There's a, that's a, let's talk about that, because that's a classic. Yes. Paul uh, Buckmaster. It's oh, a big geez. orchestra. It was a big orchestra. It wasn't like put the orchestra was put on later. It was all there. The, the, the trident was just full of violin players and who were fitting in somewhere. Where was Trident? Is that was the one, the one in Pr- Primrose Hill? Was it? Where was Trident? No, in, no, 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 in Soho. St. Anne's Court. Oh, St. Anne's Court. Oh my Saint God! I did, what I'm thinking, my brain went. Of course, that was the famous one where Tr- uh, Visconti it's, records yeah, the Electric Warrior and yeah. uh, and uh, Ziggy Stardust was made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Trident. Um, That's tiny, though. Is there an orchestra in there? Yeah, I know. I know. It's like a yeah. It's like a somebody's flat. So was Elton around? I believe he was, yeah. And Paul was, and the producer, Gus Dudgeon. Did you have a freedom at that point, Chris, to come up with with improvised stuff, or was it all... No, I think that, that would have been all written out, that riff. Right, right. It would have been oh, written right. out. And By Elton? Would that have been Elton or, or... No, Paul. Paul. Oh, yeah. Paul Buckman, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was there with a, on, a, on, a, on a podium with a baton, conducting oh, the wow. orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, OK, talking of Paul's... Um, your McCartney book, didn't you have quite an extraordinary thing with McCartney in terms of who you were working with? McCartney, yeah, I, I did. I was living in New York at the time and I got the call to do music for his movie, Say Goodbye to Broad Street. Give my regards to Broad give Street. My, I always get that yeah. wrong. Uh, yeah, well, I didn't know any, much about it, but he had these songs and Ringo was on drums. Um, you know, at one point, Dave Edmonds was on guitar, second guitar. And when Paul was playing the piano, he got John Paul Jones to play the bass. Oh my God! Um, and Linda was in, in 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 evidence. She was very nice, taking pictures of everybody. Um, and wasn't it and, George Martin and Jeff Emmerich? Yeah. So there, there, there was a there was a situation where we were doing this one thing. I was flown over regularly to do. You would think to do rehearsals, but actually those are the days. Took, yeah. took took place in Air Studios in Oxford Circus, right? This is this is our rehearsal. We were there for a week, and we'd... Yeah. so there were there were several times, and I'd be playing along the song that Paul had brought, and I was the only non-Beatle. It would be Ringo, Jeff, Emmerich, George Martin, Paul, and me. Wow. So I could be fantasizing. Oh, I'm George Harrison for the day. <laughs> Did, but when you describe when you describe your growing up as a kid and what you're into, were the Beatles still part of that, or were you just a, no, were they a bit too I, pop for you? I'm a bit uh, the same age as them. So when I was growing up, George was also growing up. We were kind of adult um, together. Um, yeah. I was when I was growing up. It was Elvis and and, and Lonnie Donovan yeah. and Little Richard and. Gene Vincent, and uh, all this went along with it, like you know, Frank Ifield. <laughs> yes, all the all that other stuff. But was there still a sense of like <laughs> the Beatles? There is still a sense, even for you, as. A, as... Well, yes, uh, we uh, we paid great great attention to them because there, there was still a feeling, especially since I was still in my sort of jazz snob era, uh, uh, time. Uh, who are these guys? You know, she loves you and all this. Well, actually, these guys are actually pretty good. They can play well, they play in time, they play in tune, and they sing excellently. They know a few chords. They know a few chords, yeah, and they can play them very well. They're excellent guitar sounds. At that time, the guitar was in the, in the, mic, in the mix. You, would, you wouldn't get, like, bass and bass drum like you do now. It would, that would be quite muted. What would be carrying the whole thing would be, be the guitar sound. George Harrison's guitar sound would yeah. be really great yeah. playing. yeah. Very clean playing, you know. When you said you were having your jazz snob period, so what's the jazz you were listening to? I'm quite interested. Um, well, I liked Oscar Peterson, I liked guitar players like Jim Hall, Barney Kessel, Cal Farlow, and Grant yeah. Green. Like Joe Pass, or was that too? 
Gerald Thomas came on, came on a little later. And a little I later, yeah. wasn't so impressed with him. Uh, yeah, but Chris, I was listening to Nucleus uh, yeah. earlier, because right. I remember them being around when I was a kid, you know, and a, a few of the six formers used to have Nucleus albums in the school. But, but, but that particular Elastic Rock album is amazing. And no, I like that album. Your guitar is still so you. It's not like, oh, suddenly you're playing jazz and you're playing like a trad jazzer or a, or a, or a kind of, you know, it still has that sort of bluesy sort of, you know, e you know even that Rock rockabilly and feel to it. And it's got soul. And, and I, I mean, Elastic Rock is, is a fantastic track. Well, thank you. I like that too. I, um, that was my audition doing that song. I was uh, asked to come, again, it was at Trident Studios. Um, and I was given that song to play, a solo one. They didn't have a solo on it. They, the band had already done the, uh, the, the, the track. And I, uh, I think that was my first or second take. And I can remember that the only thing I was thinking, worried about was that I parked somewhere in Soho, which you could in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and I was worried that my my meter was, was running out and he had to go out and feed the meter. I could not that hear was... that in the solo. No. <laughs> but, that, but I have that abiding memory about that about that session. And I got the gig. I love it. Two of these, I mean, I urge anyone who hasn't heard it to go and listen to Nucleus Elastic Rock. But, you know, we're talking about that track, which is a classic. And then we're talking about Hyde Park. And on your mind, in one of them is hay fever. And the other one is your... It's <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... But you didn't stay in that band. That wasn't your, that wasn't your through line. At that point, I couldn't, wait, I couldn't wait to get out of anything to do with jazz and get into rock. Um, and I felt that you see, the, the, the thing called jazz rock or jazz fusion was just starting then, and everybody in Nucleus except me was a was a, was a jazzer who had not paid any attention to rock. They saw me as somebody that that could legitimately get in as a rock element to make it jazz fusion, and I could relate to the jazzers because I knew the repertoire of the jazz musician. And, uh, and so I got a lot of work. I got work with Mike Gibbs' band, Mike Westbrook's band, um, all the jazzers that were around at that time who wanted to make it into the new jazz fusion sort of uh, fad. Uh, so I, got, I was a bit fed up with that. So, well, why can't I just play some rock and roll now? I'd like to want to do that now. So that's what I did. You didn't play on the Hapsash and the Coloured Coat album, did you? Did you, you, you on that second UFO album? I don't recall that. Oh, because we have Mike Bat on. That's where, yeah, we have Mike Bat on. And, of course, another long association of yours. Yeah, and of course, Mike of course, Of course, you know, you, I have to say it, Chris, but you, you became a Womble briefly, didn't you? I did become a Womble, yeah. Well, it was, it was, a, it was all session guys. Sex guard. Pistol to Womble in kind of, within an incredibly <laughs> short space of time. That's kind of <laughs> Yeah, it was all going on at the same time. Um, which, which, which Womble had the quiff? I can't remember. <laughs> oh, uh, I was Wellington with the Flying V. Uh, <laughs> which how was did not you really... feel about that? Well, it kind of crept up on me, really. We were all session guys. It was like Les Hurdle on the bass and Clem Catini on the drums and Ray Cooper on the tambourine. And we were all session guys. We weren't really Wombles. It was all Mike Bat's vocals, all his compositions. We were yeah. just tired, you know. But, but it's very funny, isn't it, that the, the, the Wombles, you know, with all the names you just reeled off, was actually a really posh band. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was very uh, resourceful of Mike to sort of pull all those different styles. Wombling this, wombling Merry Christmas, uh, in the hall of the mountain womble, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got so you it, in a suit, it, though. It, he got you in a suit. Well, he did, you know, because there was, uh, I don't know whether it's still the, the, the case, but if you... Did you have Vivian a, Westwood make yours? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was Mike's mum. It was Mike's mum, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> in those days, I think it still might happen. Uh, if you got on top of the pops, you're supposed to redo your track. Nobody oh, I remember that. doing that. I remember doing that. Going in, you, you pretend yeah, yeah. to record you, you the single. Going to that, the, 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 most, uh, the most popular place was that place, Redan Recorders, behind mm. Queensway, because yeah. they had no window between the control room and the studio. So that what they do is they just get the tape in, put all the faders down, and they send you in <laughs> one at a time. And they go, okay, guy, go and do the bass. And you just go and stand in the control room, and they'd lift and they bring up the bass fader. 
the, right, the, with the original like, track. Go, right, I've done it. Yeah. Because they yeah, had it. Because he had a, union, a musician's union guy making yeah. sure that you did it. They used to fool him. They used to take him for a drink at the time and they swap the yeah. tapes around. Yeah, because you weren't the, allowed the, the, to my... mime on, on TV with your original track because that would put session players who may have played on the track out of work. Right. Yeah. Well, if you're a Womble, you had to mime because they had no mouths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, if you're a Womble, you had to mime because, frankly, you're a fucking Womble. <laughs> yeah. No, but the, the, the end... end my point in making the, in bringing this up was that uh, the musicians' union said that the rule was you had to ask the original guys to do the top of the pops track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nobody took any notice of that because none of the session guys were interested in doing like a last minute thing of something they'd already done. But Mike did call me up and said, "Are you free to come over and, and jump about in a womble suit?" And I thought it might be a fun thing to do, so I said, "Okay, let's do it." So that, that's how I became a Womble. Not, n no other reason, really. Because none of the others, like Ray Cooper or Clem Katine, none of those guys did it. But, but did the tapes get swapped in the end for, the, for, for Mike's original yeah, recording? Yeah, yeah the, he, he didn't, he didn't uh, redo them. I mean, obviously, one of the early introductions I knew of, and I still have the record, is Motorbiking, um, which was a fantastic sort of pre-punk kind of rock yeah. record, wasn't it? Um, how did it all... still one of the greatest honours of my life is that you played that at my 50th birthday. God. Oh, <laughs> I did. Well, I remember that. Great, yeah. great, great guitar part. Down. Yeah, I mean, how did the whole thing come about with you getting that record out? Um, well, I I knew Mickey Mouse from a, my session years. Um, I did an album with Donovan, uh, so I knew I knew Mickey. I did the Sharks, which was kind of fizzled out because it wasn't a success so I was left with some with, with my next thing to do so I sort of thought to myself this is 1975 I looked at the, the Melody Maker charts and I thought what's missing from here what what does this chart need I don't particularly like any of these songs what you know and I thought back to my Elvis Gene Vincent Eddie Cochran era and I thought well you need something like that because there's nothing like that so I wrote this. I wrote the song "Motorbiking," uh, and I, I remember driving around London with the acoustic guitar in the back of the. And I, and I thought, I'm going to go and see Mickey Most. So I drove up to his office and played him the song. And he said, it was like a, out of a Hollywood movie. He had his feet up on the desk, smoking a cigar, and he said, "That's going to be a hit." <laughs> but, but Chris, when you say you played he, it to him, did you play him a demo, or did you actually play him on, play it to no, him on the guitar? No, no, I played him what I had on the acoustic guitar. Amazing. But, well, Mickey Moses is one of those, you know, he, he, yeah. he's got an imagination, he's got an ear, and he's got yeah, some... Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't, you don't need to have a, a demo. But why, Chris, why, in the poster and sleeve, are you leaning against a car? Oh, that was all done afterwards. <laughs> yeah. A lovely 50s American cast. It's the right ethos, but it's still a car. Yeah. But also, one thing, Chris, is because your follow-up, which I've played with you, which was um, the gunfight one. A jump in my car was the follow-up. Okay, but there was it. Was it? But was it the record? You know, there was that full-on, you know, ricochet yeah, thing. West was called, which was brilliant. Which was, um, which was, it was a retro record then, but actually incredibly ahead of its time, if you know what I mean. Because so, it was that would have set the world on fire if that had been years later. What was it called? Gunfight. Gunfight. Yeah. Yeah. Gunfight. Yeah. Brilliant Western sort of Dick Dale almost style kind of. Yeah, well, it was kind of doing any sort of spaghetti yeah. western type of thing. Spaghetti western, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you'd started to find who you were and why people wanted Chris Spedding on the record? Because I know as a fan, when I was a kid, you know, your style on sort of some tracks like Tokyo Joe and Let's Stick Together and, and, and Motorbiking, there was, there was definitely the sound of Chris Spedding. And you must yeah. have then realised why people wanted you on, your, on their records. Uh, yeah, I think so. After uh, the motorbiking thing came out, and uh, after the Sharks, I'd made myself into a proper rock guitar player in the Sharks because we went out and did proper rock gigs. Uh, that was one good thing that came out of it. I knew what people wanted in that era. They basically wanted overdriven rhythm, rhythm guitar. Is that was the that was the ethos in the mid seventies. With a slight retro 50s sound as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You're always, sure. always just, you're a very Gibson sounding guy, aren't you? Even though I know you play you play well when I've played with you've always played Trussards, but yeah, yeah, the, the, the humbucking pickup, yeah. I do like. I, I think it's important to have like a Stratocaster or a Telecaster as well. It's funny, so, Chris, because you're what you're the one guitarist I find it really hard to associate with a Stratocaster. The telly, absolutely. Like, yeah, just don't strike me as a Strat guy at all. Well, some, sometimes there's a sound, sort of delicacy of sound that you can't get out of the Gibson, and and then you turn to the Stratocaster yeah. to get that in the studio. You know, I very rarely play it live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen you play one. You ended up working a lot with Robert Gordon, who's who probably is is a bigger quiff than you, right? Uh, I, I, I oh, he's more into the say. Oh, he's more into the fifties thing. Yeah, that's his thing. I mean, that seemed like a marriage made in heaven, didn't it? That 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 you and him together and. Uh, yeah, well, I, th- I I I thought well, I'm, I'd never rated myself as a singer. I've got I've got about a four note range, which which influences the type of melodies that I write for myself. <laughs> uh, and I thought, here we are with a guy who can really sing. Uh, I'm a guy who writes but doesn't want to sing. And I play the guitar, Robert doesn't. So, yeah, when I first met him, I thought this would, this will be uh, really good for both of us. Because yeah. it's a kind of art rockabilly, isn't it, really, I suppose? It's become a bit of a schlucky thing with uh, lots of people doing it badly, but Robert did it really well with Link Ray in the early days and, and so did yeah. the Stray Cats when they when they did their first records. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit similar to the punk thing. Like it's, it, it, People imitated the genre but not always that well, as good as the first guys that did it. Same with Skiffle. Not everybody was as good as Lonnie Donegan. Yeah. How, was it, how was it being on the road, uh, Guy, with, with, uh, with Chris? Because you went out with Roxy Chris. Music together in the we, early With 2000s. Roxy Music and with Brian Ferry. We've, we've toured a lot. I've also done a lot of solo stuff with Chris. I mean, we had a lovely trio, you, me and Andy Newmark. We also worked for a Swiss singer together. I've got yeah. to say, Chris, you get the credit as well for getting me to do possibly the weirdest gig I've ever done in my life, which is where you had this guy, and very well paid, if I don't mind, I don't mind saying, um, where, which was a Dutch guy who's a huge fan of yours who had a chain of women's wear shops. And we went oh, and played in his garden. That's right. For a party of his. Yes. It was... And, um, and he <laughs> hired... And Andy Newmark. He hired lights and a stage and everything. Lights, in, yeah, from, from it was room. a proper... Yeah. And, I, the, and it was one of the funniest things, because late that night after we'd played, I said to this guy, he's a really nice guy, I said, this is amazing, but this is you know, really, really lavish. How, how, do you, how do you get to do this? He said, well, unlike all my friends, I don't ski. And because I don't have the expense of taking my family skiing, I can have Chris Spedding play at my party. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, yeah. He used to gra- grab us whenever we did a European tour. Were we doing a re- European tour, or was it a one-off? It was uh, no, we uh, no, we were we were doing other stuff in Switzerland. Other stuff, think, yeah, with, yeah. with Natalie, yeah. So yeah, we just we popped make... Yeah, no, we didn't go. We didn't do travel specially. Also, Gary should point out that Chris has a Japanese fan who follows him everywhere. Yes, this guy structures all his holidays around Chris's tours, everything. I, I've never been out anywhere wow. without this guy showing up somewhere. Wow, wow. Yes. yes. We've all got one of those. I can't remember, so I feel very rude not knowing his name, actually. Uh, uh, Tosh, his name's Toshio, and he'll probably see this, so we'll give, give him a due... Yeah, uh, Toshio, he's a very, very sweet man. Very sweet Chris, man. And <laughs> Chris, yes. it's, been, it's, it's been an honour talking to you. We're going to have to uh, make our way. Um, OK, we're, yeah, it's we're, been fun. We're we're in Akron and we've got a we've got a gig tonight, haven't we? We oh. have got a gig, in, yeah. In Akron, for birthplace of your old friend Chrissy. Chrissy Hines, Hines believe, yes, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is, yes. yes. extraordinary. Um, and in fact, and I've just realised I'm wearing a Vivian Westwood top in honour of you. I, I, do you know what the, the story? Really? I, I oh, heard yeah. you. I, I I I know you've got a you had a funny story about just looking back to Sex Pistols briefly before we go uh, about when didn't it? Never mind the bollocks come out in China. Oh, oh yeah. yes, the Chinese. Yes, yeah. they, yes. They, they they translated it into Chinese, and then when you translated it back, it said, "Take take no notice of the rude word." <laughs> never mind. So ne- never mind is take no notice. <laughs> the bollocks, the rude word, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which completely defeats the object of the title. Yes, yeah. yes, it does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
but it also makes complete sense. It does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course it does. I Go need on. to direct, I just want to direct people to what I thought is, I think it's a really fantastic solo album of yours called Joyland, which you've got uh, Johnny yeah. Marr is on and Glenn Matlock is on. And uh, who else is on Joyland? You've got some great co Johnny Marr, yeah. Uh, co players. And, on and if one of the last things Andy Fraser did before he oh, died, yeah. he, played, he played bass on one of the tracks. It's a great oh, and uh, Arthur Brown is singing on it. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Who's just recorded a version, released a version of Lucifer Sam, a song that we play. Oh, okay. An old Floyd record. It, it's still sounding great, Arthur. Still got the same yeah. range. Yeah. Chris, Bye. lovely to see you, Thank mate. You both. See you when I get home. All Good the very best to you, man. Cheers. Good, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Good luck. Yeah. Bye-bye. Ah, oh, that was a pleasure talking to him. I, you know, it's I, a lovely place. Yeah, lovely man. Lovely man. Pinching my teenage self to, to speak yeah. to the great Chris Spedding. And, you know, any, any, all those records we mentioned, you have to go out and have a listen. But have a listen, Guy, Elastic Rock, Nucleus. No, no, I did. I, it is fantastic. I know, but you're yeah. right. I, I haven't listened for a long time. But um, he's one of those people, um, uh, whoever you are listening to this, you've got a record that he's on. Anyway, yeah. You know. Yeah, I've got a bunch of them. Um, we are uh, still keeping this going from the States. We've got some other names in our diary haven't we in the next we are we have got to say, we're fighting against time zone differences and bad wi-fi <laughs> i know i had to change room <laughs> halfway through this yeah. to get my wi-fi <laughs> all right thank you but for listening there's nothing thank we you. won't do to bring you your rock on tours yes thank you to all our right. producer ben jones and Stu, who's working it today and um it's good night from me and it's good night from them When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.